Hello, happy new year, and welcome to another episode of A-Minder. My name is Ellen Rowe, and I'm back with the latest research on vascular contributions to Alzheimer's disease. This episode covers papers that showed up on PubMed in October 2021, and today we only have eight papers on deck that primarily focus on the blood-brain barrier and white matter hyperintensities as a proxy for cerebrovascular disease. Stay tuned to learn more about the implications of blood vessel health in the context of Alzheimer's disease, and for a disease perspective a bit more lively than the classic amyloid cascade hypothesis. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. New listeners, welcome, and regular listeners, thanks for tuning in this month. Unsurprisingly, if you've listened to my episodes in the past, I'm going to start with some context for vascular contributions to Alzheimer's disease for the new listeners. So as always, go ahead and skip over the next couple of minutes if you're already familiar with the landscape of this research, or if you've already heard a version of this spiel in one of my previous episodes. So the brain is one of the most highly vascularized organs, with no more than a hair's width between any neuron and its closest blood vessel. As you likely already know, or can infer from that, the cerebrovasculature is critical in keeping the brain healthy and functional. It plays a lot of important roles, like being the highway for nutrient and oxygen delivery to the brain, it's a main route of waste disposal, including amyloid clearance, and its selective blood-brain barrier is critical to keep blood proteins, pathogens, and immune cells out of the brain. When these functions are compromised, like when there is reduced blood flow to the brain, or when the blood-brain barrier is compromised, this can lead to metabolic stress and inflammatory cascade. So really, the blood vessels may actually be responsible for some of the initiating events in the AD pathology. As a field, we're really starting to appreciate that vascular dysfunction is an early event in the AD pathology, as we see changes in cerebral blood flow and loss of blood-brain barrier integrity with age, and with the main genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's, ApoE4. So as we tune into the importance of the vasculature in maintaining brain health, we're learning a lot about how things might go wrong through the course of developing AD, and how maintaining vascular health and function could be a new way of preventing or treating AD. So hopefully that got you hooked on the idea that we really should be paying attention to these blood vessels in the context of Alzheimer's disease. And again, as always, a few notes before I dive into the main content of the episode. A reminder that Aminder includes all papers from peer-reviewed journals for any given month, meaning that we don't exclude any based on our own perceived quality of the science or accuracy of the interpretations. We also mostly draw from the abstracts for the content of our episodes, so be sure to check out the full papers for more details and really to make your own judgments on the quality of the science before you accept anything as fact. We provide free numbered bibliographies with our episodes that you can find in the show notes, so you can note down the numbers of the papers that pique your interest here and track down the full manuscripts using our bibliography. Also, Aminder requires funding for equipment, a subscription to a podcast hosting platform, and more, so we'd like to thank the Canadian Consortium for Neurodegeneration and Aging for their financial support. You'll hear more about them and what they do throughout our episodes, and we will make note of the research that they funded. And finally, to wrap up the housekeeping items, some common abbreviations that you'll hear me use in today's episode are AD for Alzheimer's disease, BBB for blood-brain barrier, and CAA for cerebral amyloid angiopathy, which is the deposition of amyloid into blood vessel walls. So with that covered, let's dive in. 
As per usual, I've dedicated the first segment of the episode to papers focused on further understanding white matter hyperintensities and cerebrovascular disease. You'll see a lot of clinical studies here. First up is a paper called Independent Effects of Amyloid and Vascular Markers on Long-Term Functional Outcomes, an eight-year longitudinal study of subcortical vascular cognitive impairment. And this is by first author Kang and last author Seo from the Samsung Medical Center in Korea with other affiliates in Korea as well, and they published their paper in the European Journal of Neurology. So here we have a paper that doesn't primarily focus on Alzheimer's disease per se, but rather on a condition called subcortical vascular cognitive impairment, which is a form of vascular dementia characterized by cerebral small vessel disease in brain areas beneath the cortex. So in their study, the authors explore whether amyloid positivity or markers of cerebral amyloid angiopathy, which are both characteristic of Alzheimer's disease, influence the clinical outcomes that we care about in patients. So really, they wanted to see how these different pathologies, reflected by imaging markers, affect daily living and mortality. In their study, they included nearly 200 individuals with diagnosed subcortical vascular cognitive impairment who had both MRI to quantify microbleeds and white matter hyperintensities and amyloid PET imaging at baseline. They then followed these individuals each year to record stroke events, functional disability score, and death over a period of about eight years. Similarly to other studies that I've covered, they found that amyloid positivity, larger white matter hyperintensity volume, and three or more microbleeds each predicted functional disability, or the capacity for individuals to go about their normal daily activities. These relationships held whether or not the individual had a stroke. They also found that white matter hyperintensity volume was connected to mortality. So with these results, the authors suggest that these imaging markers of pathology can inform on important long-term patient outcomes. So really, this is more evidence that white matter hyperintensities and the cerebrovascular abnormalities that they often reflect map well to impairment, even in those with mixed pathology. So next up, we're sticking with white matter hyperintensities in our second paper called Association of Regional White Matter Hyperintensities with Longitudinal Alzheimer's-like Pattern of Neurodegeneration in Older Adults. This is by first author Rizvi and last author Brickman from Columbia University in the United States, and they had other collaborators across the states as well. And the paper was published in JAMA. In this study, the authors used a community-based cohort of about 300 older participants to see whether white matter hyperintensity volume maps with thinning of the cortex and memory loss, and whether these relationships differ across ethnic groups. Ultimately, they wanted to test whether cerebrovascular disease, reflected by white matter hyperintensities, promotes neurodegeneration reflected by cortical thinning. So their cohort was pulled from the Washington Heights Inwood Columbia Aging Project, where participants had a baseline and follow-up MRI scan about four years apart, as well as memory tests. They found that baseline white matter hyperintensity volume mapped with cortical thinning in Alzheimer's-related regions, which were the medial temporal lobe and in the frontal and parietal regions. And this was true across all three ethnic groups studied, which were non-Hispanic whites, non-Hispanic blacks, and Hispanic groups. However, they did find in some regions that the relationship between white matter hyperintensities and cortical thinning was strongest in the non-Hispanic black group. They also found that cortical thinning in the entorhinal cortex was associated with lower memory scores. 
Be sure to check out the full paper for a more granular account of the different brain regions. They were quite a mouthful to report them all here. But overall though, these data suggest that cerebrovascular disease may promote neurodegeneration in AD-relevant regions, especially in those of a non-Hispanic black descent. A great study with lots of granular statistics to comb through. I definitely encourage you to read this one. So more on white matter hyperintensities here, now with a pinch of ApoE to spice things up. We have white matter hyperintensities and apolipoprotein E affect the association between mean arterial pressure and objective and subjective cognitive functioning in older adults. This is the third paper of the episode by first author Jung and last author Damozio from the Wayne State University in the USA with collaborators from the Netherlands, and their paper was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. So we know by now, with the mounds of evidence, that blood pressure factors into dementia risk. In fact, there's an accepted relationship between blood pressure and cognitive decline, both objective decline as assessed by a clinician and subjective decline assessed by the patient themselves or someone close to them. We also know that white matter hyperintensities are related to both blood pressure and cognitive decline. So with this in mind, these authors asked whether white matter hyperintensities could explain the relationship between blood pressure and cognitive decline, and also whether ApoE genotype, which is the main genetic risk factor for late onset AD, could explain that three-factor relationship. So a lot of different variables here to keep track of. The study was cross-sectional in nature and included 87 cognitively normal adults between the age of 50 and 85, who all had regional white matter hyperintensity volume quantified, mean arterial blood pressure measured, ApoE genotyping done, cognitive tests performed, and they reported on subjective cognitive decline. So the authors found, after crunching their numbers, that white matter hyperintensity burden in the superior longitudinal fasciculus in particular, mediated the relationship between blood pressure and executive function, but that this mediation and the effect of blood pressure on white matter hyperintensities was only significant in ApoE4 carriers. They also found that white matter hyperintensity burden in the whole brain and in the anterior thalamic radiation mediated the relationship between blood pressure and subjective cognitive decline, and that the effect of blood pressure on the whole brain white matter hyperintensities was only significant in ApoE4 carriers. So these results suggest that the severity of white matter hyperintensities and ApoE genotype can at least partially explain the relationship between blood pressure and cognitive decline. So perhaps clinicians should look at these markers as well when assessing the risk of blood pressure on cognitive decline. Next, we have another clinical study, but this time looking at a plasma metabolite's relationship with neurodegeneration and cerebrovascular disease. Could it be a new drug target? Potentially. So paper number four is titled, Low Plasma Ergothionine Levels Are Associated with Neurodegeneration and Cerebrovascular Disease in Dementia. This is by first author Wu and last author Lei from the National University of Singapore with collaborators from the Netherlands, and they published their paper in Free Radical Biology and Medicine. So like me, when I first came across this abstract, you may be wondering what ergothionine is. Based on the name, you may have guessed that it's related to an amino acid, and you'd be right, it's histidine in this case, and it's actually a strong antioxidant compound found in some mushrooms and beans. In terms of its connection to AD, this is a bit more fuzzy. Some studies have found that blood concentrations of the compound are lower in those with mild cognitive impairment, suggesting that it may be involved in AD progression, and these authors wanted to test this hypothesis. 
So they did a cross-sectional study in about 500 participants who were either cognitively normal, had cognitive impairment but no dementia, had AD, or were diagnosed with vascular dementia. All participants had ergothionine and one of its metabolites measured in their blood using mass spec, and they also had cognitive testing and brain imaging done. They found that the highest levels of ergothionine were in the normal controls, with lower levels in the cognitively impaired with no dementia, and even lower levels in those with dementia, so a clear trend with disease severity. When they adjusted multivariable models for vascular risk factors and demographics, they found that low levels of the antioxidant compound were associated with dementia regardless of whether that person had cerebrovascular abnormalities reflected in brain imaging. But in the more mild pre-dementia group, they found that the relationship with ergothionine was only significant in the presence of cerebrovascular disease. So building on its connection to cerebrovascular disease, they also found that lower levels were associated with white matter hyperintensities and brain atrophy. So with these data, the authors suggest that ergothionine could be a new biomarker for dementia, and that low levels of the strong antioxidant could exasperate the oxidative stress that feeds into neurodegeneration. So with only eight papers in this episode, we're already halfway there. We'll take a short break here, and I'll be back with a focus on the blood-brain barrier. Nearly one million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years, and sadly no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia, and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. Welcome back. On to paper number five now, focused on the blood-brain barrier as promised. We have a paper called Gene Ontology Curation of the Blood-Brain Barrier to Improve the Analysis of Alzheimer's and Other Neurological Diseases. This is by first author Savri Mutu and last author Lovering from the University College London in the UK, and they also had some collaborators from Cambridge, and their paper was published in Database Oxford. So here we have a really important piece of work for the big data and BBB fields of AD research. So you've likely come across work in your reading that has used Gene Ontology, or Go for short, which is really a big database that details what genes code for, what their protein product does, which pathways it's involved in, and where it's found in the cell. All really important things to know if you're trying to piece together the complex biological processes that lead to neurodegeneration, or if you're working with a high-throughput dataset with tens of thousands of genes, transcripts, or proteins. So this paper details work done to better annotate over 100 genes linked to BBB function, and it also incorporates data on the microRNAs that regulate their expression. So our conclusions are only as good as the datasets and information we use to make them, so this is a super exciting step to take big data projects even further with a more granular look on blood-brain barrier and its function. So now on to how we might protect the BBB. We have a paper called Targeting. PDZRN3 maintains adult blood-brain barrier and central nervous system homeostasis. This is paper number six in our free bibliography. 
by first author Guignot and last author Duplat from the University of Bordeaux in France. And they published their paper in the Journal of Cerebral Blood Flow and Metabolism. Right off the bat, if you're like me, you're probably wondering what PDZRN3 is. So the authors give a nice preface in the abstract, explaining that it's an E3 ubiquitin ligase that regulates the WNT pathway. This pathway is super important and controls the expression of many genes involved in many biological processes, and it's really gained attention in neurodegenerative disease research because it becomes dysregulated with aging, and it may have links to amyloidogenic processing and microglial survival. So here the authors did a series of experiments in transgenic mice to see how manipulating levels of PDZRN3 might alter downstream WNT signaling in endothelial cells, and ultimately the blood-brain barrier, in the context of vascular dementia, or AD. So on to how they actually created the context of vascular dementia, or AD, in mice. They used gradual carotid artery stenosis, or the gradual closure of the main artery feeding the brain, to model vascular dementia, while they used the APP-PS1 transgenic mouse model to model amyloid pathology seen in AD. So in their model of vascular dementia, the authors found that overexpressing PDZRN3 in endothelial cells, increased BBB permeability, and cognitive decline. In line with this data, they also found that in both disease models, decreasing the expression of PDZRN3 in endothelial cells decreased BBB permeability, so strengthened it, and also decreased cognitive decline. So probing into mechanisms as to why they observed these initial results, they found that wiping out PDZRN3 can protect against amyloid-induced WNT pathway abnormalities and actually increase tight junction proteins. This is a super thorough paper with lots of data to comb through, but overall it suggests that PDZRN3 could be a key link between BBB integrity and cognitive decline in vascular and AD dementia. Could also be a potential druggable target. So I'm very excited to see where this line of work leads, and I definitely encourage you to check out the paper to really comb through their data. Paper number seven is also focused on the BBB to some extent, and this one is called Semi-Mechanistic Population Pharmacokinetic Modeling to Investigate Amyloid Beta Trafficking and Accumulation at the BBB Endothelium. This is by first author Wang and last author Kandimala from the University of Minnesota in the USA, and they published their paper in Molecular Pharmaceutics. So as I've discussed before, the blood vessels are a main route of amyloid clearance in the brain. The endothelial cells that line the vessels express transporters that can shuttle amyloid across the blood-brain barrier, and several groups are looking at how to target the endothelium to promote amyloid clearance. But one thing that could go wrong in this process is the accumulation of amyloid inside the endothelium if it's not properly exocytosed, which may affect BBB integrity and lead to more downstream problems. So here the authors tested this hypothesis using radio-labeled amyloid injected into mice, SPECT CT imaging, and radioactivity assays in plasma to visualize and quantify transport across the endothelium. They used recombinant radio-labeled peptides of both A-beta-40 and A-beta-42, two predominant species seen in AD, and they injected them into either the plasma or directly into the brain to evaluate both directions of transport. Using a series of molecular kinetics equations, they were able to calculate classic biochemistry kinetics, like the maximal rate of transport, or Vmax, of the whole brain endothelium, hence their title Population Pharmacokinetic Modeling, 
And they also went in vitro with the endothelial cell line HCMECD3 to probe mechanistic routes of amyloid accumulation in the endothelium, and they found that exocytosis was impaired when the cells were treated with either isoform of recombinant A-beta. The results of their kinetic studies aren't super detailed in the abstract, so I'll invite you to check out the full paper for those. And while there certainly are limitations to the methods used in the study, it does bring us one step closer to understanding what's going on with amyloid at the endothelium, which is a key question in the field. And finally, I'll wrap up the episode with a glimmer of hope. As per usual, our last paper is on a potential treatment avenue targeting the vasculature, and this one's called PRFF Peptide Mimic Interferes with Toxic Fibrin A-beta-42 Interaction by Emulating the A-beta Binding Interface on Fibrinogen. This is by first author Bhattacharji and last author Bhattacharya from the Indian Institute of Chemical Biology in India, and they published their paper in ACS Chemical Neuroscience. So fibrinogen is a key member of the clotting cascade found in the blood, but when it leaks into the brain as a result of a faulty blood-brain barrier, it can spark inflammation. And it also interacts with A-beta-42 to form aggregates that can then deposit in blood vessels and lead to cerebral amyloid angiopathy. These aggregates also have the special and detrimental feature of being resistant to normal clot breakdown by a protein called plasmin, making them very tough to get rid of. This cascade is in line with the growing data package suggesting that a compromised BBB could be an initiating factor in the AD pathology, also resulting in downstream CAA. So in this paper, the authors demonstrate that a short peptide similar to the alpha chain fragment of fibrinogen can compete with fibrinogen to interact with A-beta-42, ultimately inhibiting the toxic aggregates from being formed. They also found that it was able to dissolve pre-existing clots, but not interfere with normal fibrin interactions required for clotting. Of course, considerably more work following this in vitro study would be needed to bring this peptide into the clinic, but a potential treatment for CAA is super exciting. And that is the last of the papers from October 2021 on vascular contributions to AD. Hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed putting it together. And if you did, we'd love if you wrote us a review on whichever platform you're using to listen to us. This helps us reach more scientists like yourself and make sure that we're keeping Alzheimer's research a well-oiled and informed machine. A reminder that we offer free bibliographies with all of our episodes, which is why you heard me numbering all the papers, so that you can track down the full papers that I've summarized here. You can also find a link to all of our bibliographies in the episode notes. We do release bibliographies for the topics that we don't currently cover with full episodes as well, like fluid biomarkers. So check those out as a resource to start your literature search. Also, we're releasing episodes Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so be sure to check those out for a range of other topics related to Alzheimer's disease research. Huge thank you to the whole Aminder team, as always, for bringing this project to life, and especially to our sorting team for their help in parsing out focused episodes like this one. My reviewer, Kate, for turning this back to me quickly after I was super late in putting this episode together. Our editing team, our musician, Anusha, for writing the beautiful music that you hear in each episode, and our managers, Sarah and Ellen Kosh, who keep Aminder going strong. Also again, thank you to the CCNA for their sponsorship and for believing in this project. If you're interested in joining this wonderful team of ours, we're always recruiting. So send us an email with your CV and let us know what you're interested in helping with. You can also reach us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Aminder Podcast. And of course, thank you, our listener, for tuning in. We hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Bye for now.